بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Taala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet peace be upon him. Alrighty, does anyone have any questions about anything at all from current discussions, past discussions, unrelated discussions, anything? Nothing whatsoever. All right. Usual blank stares. I'm very thankful that so many of you have your cameras on so I can look at human beings rather than words. And I'm still pulling up the screen over here. So it's taking me a moment. As you know, we are continuing our exploration of Surat Al-Baqarah. And we are getting into the uh, to the portion of the ayah. And they establish Salah. So yesterday we looked at they believe in the unseen and now they establish Salah. So having said that, while I'm still pulling this up, what do you understand that to mean? To establish Salah. There's easy interpretations and then more deep interpretations. Any thoughts? Ifat, what does it mean? You're on uh, mute, just you know. Yeah, hi, Salaam. Wa alaikum assalam. So I was going to say that um, I would interpret that as making it um, a part of the day, like making it solidified in part of your routine, mm-hmm. yeah. and in your and in your society and. Absolutely. So to establish Salah, I'm writing this down, but then I'll switch over the screen. We have the individual and then we have the collective aspects of establishing Salah. And let's switch over to the screen. Once again, let me know you can see the screen or not. Yeah, very good. And so at the individual level, it's basically... Part, as you mentioned, part of your routine, part of your day. At the collective level, it is also part of the routine of the day. So, for example, at the collective level, if you think of, so, for example, Chicago, but perhaps many, uh, many urban cities, you have breakfast time, which might go until 6 or 7 a.m., 9 a.m. Rush hour, which then goes from 6 a.m. till about 10 a.m. The workday, which goes from about 9 to 5. Some people earlier, some people later. And then you have break time, which is somewhere around 10 o'clock. Lunch, which is around 11 to 1. In terms of just uh, think of like that's when you have the most traffic. Ladder break time, you know, for some people, smoke break, bathroom break, whatever. And then commute home, rush hour number two, which is three or four o'clock till about six or seven. Then prime time slash dinner time. And then getting ready to go to bed. And then, you know, this is when all the old people, you know, will watch the news. And then bedtime. Now, imagine okay, you have Fajr, Zohar, Asr, Maghrib, Isha. Did I say them all? Yeah. Um, 
as a fixed part of those days, that would be the collective routine. The individual routine, at the very least, means you are scheduling your prayers around your day as though that it is not a choice. Higher than that is you're scheduling your day around your prayers. So my dad, uh, probably in the 1990s, uh, early 1990s maybe, uh, he retires like around 2005-ish. Uh, he decided he's going to go for all five prayers at whatever the local masjid was, which then meant he's driving the distance to go to the mosque to pray and then to come back, which then also meant he's getting to work much earlier to make up the time, leaving much later to make up the time. But that became part of his normal fixed day. And then he retired, of course, because he's a Daisy dad. He started immediately at another job. And same thing, until physically he couldn't do that job anymore. And then in retired life at the local mosque, same thing. His whole day was organized around his prayers. A year into COVID killed it all. Like even all the way up to COVID, that's what he did. And then about a year into COVID, then, you know, then he lost a lot of that. And then he started physically declining, but that's a whole different story. But the point is, that was his routine. That for most of us, the goal is to schedule our prayers around our day, around our meetings. The goal to get to is to schedule your meetings and everything around your day. That often, especially means, higher than that, is you're making it to the congregational prayer. Then you're definitely having to schedule your day, your meetings around your prayers and such. If that is a thing, suppose if I'm a mother and I'm taking care of four kids, that's a completely different picture, right? So I'm also speaking about people and in, in, in their capabilities and such. Now, in addition, you don't really reach a point when Salah is established. The closest thing is to describe it qualitatively, but the reality is that it's an ongoing process. It never ends. And that ongoing process is two ways. One is the consistency, right? The routine. But the other is the continuous improvement. That it may be this year I'm only doing fard, but next year I'm doing fard and sunnah. The year after that I'm doing fard, sunnah, and nafal. The year after that, maybe I'm also doing tahajjud and duha, ishraq, so forth and so on. So think of it both from the lens of consistency as well as continuous improvement. This is the establishment of salah. Make sense? Pretty straightforward. Now, how is establishing salah parallel with believing in the unseen, which is parallel with alif lam mim? What are your thoughts? Do you mind repeating your question, please? Okay, so yesterday when we spoke about belief in the unseen, we said that it parallels the things we said about Alif Lamim in that I am believing that I have limits to my perception, 
that Allah is not limited by. That there's a whole world beyond my perception. Likewise with Alif Lam Mim, there's limits to my knowledge that Allah is not limited by, and thus there's a whole world of knowledge beyond it. So how does establishing prayer also parallel these points? I may say, I was going to say that um, it's a submission, okay. all of it. Yeah. So part of it is indeed, all of these are elements of submission. Absolutely, 100%. What else? Dania. Do you prefer it to be more of a Dania or a Dania? What do you think? Um, or somewhere in between? Yeah. In between. Dania. Okay. Dania. Okay. The, the like white version is Dania, you know, like the, uh. but uh, my, my parents, especially <laughs> I'm getting yelled at. It's like pronounced exactly the way it's written. Uh. Dania. Got it. <laughs> Um, yeah. But anyways, I was going to say... Um, That's interesting. Your parents, when you're in trouble, they call you by your name. When I'm in trouble, they call me by other names. But yeah, anyway, continue. I'm... I'm. Um, my. They call me Didi. Like, the entire family calls me Didi. So when oh. I'm Dania, it's like, oh. <laughs> do, you have any, do you have any, like, younger sisters or younger siblings? I have a younger, uh, younger brother. Oh, okay. Because, like, in many subcontinent cultures, Didi is like the older sister older Didi! Sister. I, I discovered this i didn't know this because like uh hey bilal we just say like api and baji and all that stuff right yeah i personally don't because iman doesn't like that but uh <laughs> we as collectively do do that yes uh, difference so I, between individual and collective as we were talking oh about. very nice that was that was pretty deep you know connecting class i was in the subway like when i used to work uh downtown at one my second to last job i used to stop off at this subway that was run by these three desi women and I kept hearing all day long, Didi, Didi. I was like, what's, what's being said? And then I discovered what it was. Anyway, back to the point you were trying to make. Yes. Um, I was going to say, you don't know, like you're, you're praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but you don't know necessarily, like you're worshiping Allah, but there isn't necessarily a, you don't know if you're like reaping a benefit. You can't see Allah, so uh -huh. you can't really see what you're praying to um, or like, why Allah needs your word like Allah doesn't obviously need your worship but you are mm -hmm. required to do salah so there's that element of like unknown mm -hmm. um so I think like those three elements is what I pops yeah totally head. so if we kind of rephrase some of this to simplify it uh, into little tiny words that I can write uh part of what we're saying is that there is a level of purpose and efficacy beyond the physical stretching kind of ish yeah and i say that's exactly what it is right that there is a purpose and efficacy beyond the physically apparent so back to your point why is prayer so mandatory? We don't know. We know that it is. Why these steps? We don't know. We know that they are. Why one ruku, why not two rukus if we have two sajdas, you know? And why five times? Why not three times? Why not seven times? <clears throat> and, and then 
part of the belief is that it is a venture into the unknown realm, the unseen realm, in terms of what is the effect of this. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I think there's also a point in here about the nature of prayer and the idea that like prayer is often, I mean, I guess it's more dua than salah, but you're asking for something. You're also acknowledging that you don't know whether it's the best thing for you. And therefore you only know you'll, that that prayer will be realized if it is indeed the best for you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so then you're especially venturing into the unknown in terms of knowledge and value and such. Yes. Sadia. So there's there's an order in Salah. And wait, did you say there's an odor in Salah? What? <laughs> order. Order. Oh, okay, you got it. Uh, like a, I mean, and it brings order to your life. And same thing is with the alif lam mim because you were asking for a parallel. So there's this order too. But if we go, but if we go like mim lam alif, it won't be effective. It uh -huh. won't have the same effect. So if we change the order of how Salah works, that might also not have that impact. Oh, so, totally. Something cool. of that sort. Absolutely. Uh, this is uh, in, in the Intro to Islam class that I teach every semester. This is an exercise we do about form of rituals where I'll have students describe what are all the steps of Jummah or what are all the steps of Mass? And they'll ask them, what if we did in reverse order? And their looks are like, can't do that. That's haram. Right. And and but the, the point is that, yeah, there is a prescribed form for those things that we accept. It's not even a matter of trust. We just accept and thus we submit to it with the belief that there is uh, some wisdom, some rationale and some efficacy. Absolutely. So all of these are different examples of how establishing Salah parallels as well as parallels belief in uh, the unseen. Okay, the third element in Ayah 3. So they believe in the unseen, they establish Salah, and they give or they spend of what we have bestowed upon them. First, a couple of terms. Yunfiqun means to give to the point of exhaustion. And then we'll speak about, you know, we in a, in a second here. So next attribute, they infak out of what we have, we have rizq upon them. So, <laughs> infaq means to give to the point of exhaustion. You can read that exhaustion two ways. One, to the point that you're tired. Another, to the point that you have nothing left to give. Both of them are sort of the same thing. If you look at your material wealth and your physical being as interconnected. Yeah. The Quran over and over speaks of giving two things. Giving of your wealth and your soul. 
So your wealth would include your material wealth, include your knowledge and such. Your soul would be giving over your time, your efforts. So they do infaq out of what we, what is we here? Anybody? Pretty easy question. Allah. Yeah, so this is the royal we. And then some of you have shared that story of, I discovered the royal we in Urdu because I was calling my friend's house and I asked, you know, and so his mom answered. I was like, Auntie, can I talk to Harun? And she's like, Yeah, Khan Bat Kalra. Yeah, so who's 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 uh who's talking? I said, Hamara Nam Omarhe, right? So literally it translates says, Our name is is Omar. Like I spoke like I was a king, you know. And I had another friend who was sitting next to me who just started laughing really hard. I was like, What? You know. So the royal we seems to be used in a couple contexts. And that is Allah as bestower. So for lack of a better term, Allah is a king and all the things that a king does. So expressions of power, expressions of giving, and or, but basically and, Allah plus the agents that Allah is using, primarily angels. Then it's literally a we. So. This seems to be the different variants where we, we see it used. When Allah is using we to speak of himself versus Allah using me or I to speak of himself, the ratio, another one of those things that I counted, is give or take about 200 to 1. That the vast majority of times Allah speaks of himself, he uses the plural. Very occasionally does he use the singular and speak about himself. But he never uses in the third person, he, he never uses they. He always uses he in the third person. So a so small point, when he's using me, it tends to be something much more uh, intimate and direct. Whereas we almost is a sense that something is happening from on high. So, and... With this considered Torah, well, God often refers to himself as we probably. Allah knows best. Yeah. As a grammatical form, yeah, we find this across numerous languages, either in self-expression or in respect. So, for example, those of you who know French, what's the difference between the uh, informal usage of you and the formal usage of you? Bilal, did you learn French like the way your dad and your uncle did? I did. Wait, which uncle? Khalid. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, dude, all they used to do was talk of French when they're doing engineering. But yeah. Um, so are you asking, like, what do you if mean I, by what's the difference? Like, how do you say it? Yeah, how do you say you informal and you formal? Uh, informal to and then formal zu. Yeah. And what does vu literally mean? You plural. You plural. Yeah. Yeah. And so so we have these expressions in, across languages. English is interesting in that most of these expressions are not there. Right. English is in one way, English is a super complicated amalgam of a bunch of languages. On the other hand, it's also stripping away, you know, a lot of cultural things. That's the closest thing, formal uh, being y'all. Yeah. Which I think is, is gaining a lot more currency now. Uh, but even like in Spanish, this you'll find interesting. So informal Spanish to formal. Usted. What does usted come from? Ustad. 
or Ostaz. Oh, snap. Sadia, you raise your hand. Yeah, so you're saying that V has been used more than I? Far more. 100 to 1, 200 to 1, yeah. Wow. So even though I is more intimate versus we, I'm... I mean, I is still used a lot. Right? I mean, think about how much Allah is just referring to Allah in the Quran. But compared to we, uh, we is used far, far more. That's interesting. So. I would have thought completely the opposite. Mm -hmm. So... And we is not only used by Allah. We is used a number of times by humans speaking of themselves. And so, for example, in the case of Khidr, who's sort of like not a normal person, but he, in explaining himself to Musa, he's using the we for himself as well. In that context, it's probably not an expression of majesty. It is probably not Khidr and the angels. It's more of this polite discourse. So this is the University of Chicago method versus all the rest of academia. All the rest of academia, when you're speaking of yourself, you use we. University of Chicago method, you use I. Right. And speaking of yourself in academic articles. Okay. All righty. <clears throat> They give they, to the point of exhaustion of what we have bestowed upon them. Rizq more often is synonymous with sustenance. Okay. Same question. How does this parallel establishing Salah and or belief in the unseen and or Alif Lam Mim? How do they all parallel? This one should be easier. Asim. Yeah, I mean, here, like, you're, like, I think, okay, so the way I think about it is, like, establishing Salah means you're, you're gaining something, okay. um, but in, in this case, you are actually giving things up. You are giving up your time, your money, your energy um, for the benefit of your community, essentially, and yeah. the you are accepting that there will be a reward for this. Okay. Regardless of, you know, evidence and things like that. And therefore it becomes belief in the unseen, right? Okay. So you're still gaining then, you're saying, right? You you believe you are, right? Like with huh. Salah, for example, uh, there there is still the sort of physical element of it and also like getting up and getting away from what you're, doing with your life that's sort of a mental break as well in a sense um whereas with this you you are there there is no material gain in the dunya uh -huh. from this yeah and so the consequence is coming from the realm of the unseen the benefit is coming from the realm of the unseen yeah what else danya did i that was a little bit more accurate that time you're fine <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. um like what what is what is my risk like it's written on uh -huh. but i don't know what my risk is uh -huh. um i don't know what my risk includes um is it you know the simplistic like monetary of what we think of or something else mm -hmm. um also there's the aspect of 
you're not just like handed your risk, you like put in work to get that risk that's provided for you. So what is that work that I need to be putting in mm-hmm. um, to, to achieve that, that risk? Um, Absolutely. So there's a lot of unknown factors that, oh, totally. that goes into it. Yeah, and this is, you know, where I keep invoking uh, Hajar. So Ibrahim uh, uh, leaves Hajar and baby Ismail there in this barren valley. And she keeps asking him, you know, you leave us here nothing. And then she said, did Allah tell you to leave us here? And he says, yes. And then she says, then Allah will take care of us. So she knew the risk was there. She didn't know where. And if she just sat there making du'a while holding baby Ismail, if she just, peace be upon them, uh, if she just sat there praying for the risk to fall upon them, chances are it would not have happened. She goes running back and forth through the hills looking for it. And then where is it? It was literally where her feet were. But it got uncovered because he's crying and his he's rubbing his feet against the ground and then unleashes the pool of Zumzum. And and so, yeah, what it is, how much it is, how do we get it is also unknown. And just like Jewel said, uh, for both of these, there's the big element of trust. This especially plays out when it is hard for me to give, not because I lack funds, but because I have funds. So let's say somebody, let's say Asim is asking me for funds for his project and I trust him and I know the project is sound and I have ample wealth to give to him. And yet it is still difficult. Why? I've been fine unusing this wealth, not needing this wealth all the way up to this point. Tomorrow something might come up. So related to the risk being unknown, the tests are also unknown. When am I scheduled to get hit with another test? And thus, it is an element of trust that I give you of this wealth, meaning, inshallah, I'm not going to need it. Yeah. Cool. Any questions, thoughts, reflections about all this? Asim. Uh, might be revealing too much about myself here, but is this also like an anti-capitalist thing? <laughs> uh, there is a repeated sentiment of anti-hoarding absolutely okay right i mean so this if we get into weber and the Protestant ethic and spirit of capitalism and such that part of the idea is that in the calvinist school in that time if i have wealth then that is a sign that god loves me and so then that created an impulse or an ethic of owning land and an an ethic of savings and in the the six o'clock class, we've been having extensive discussions about inheritance laws. And part of what was built into this culture that we're speaking about here was this idea of primogenitor, where the oldest son inherits everything with the intention of keeping the wealth of the family. And then it becomes generational wealth by keeping it in the oldest son and the oldest son and the oldest son and so forth and so on. It's the royal system. Right? Yeah, exactly. And so from that perspective, yeah, there's an anti-hoarding uh, element. Although I can't say relate to Mustafa's point <clears throat> that Islam is automatically anti-capitalist. If we just remove the idea of capitalism being 
you know, removal of all hindrances, if or if capitalism is the removal of all hindrances uh, against the growth of business, yeah, that's a problem. But a lot of the uh, yeah, a lot of the essences of honest capitalism fit very well within Islam. You know, anti-monopoly, you know, protection or a strong court system, so forth and so on. You know, same way you can equally say socialism is and is not Islamic. So, uh, but as is the case with Islam, we're always saying that, okay, that's not really Islam. Uh, this is what capitalists will often say, and they'll call it crony capitalism and such. And, and so then that becomes a different thing. Um, uh, can you go more into the point about socialism? So if socialism is an institutionalized altruism with, uh, you know, a distribution of the wealth of the society works in the sense that in the Khilafah of Omar, everyone is given a minimal subsistence. Uh, but if limits are then placed, you know, then that would be a little bit different. So this is the, the contrast, not to get too far off the topic, between the Khilafah of Omar and the Khilafah of Uthman. And Omar's Khilafah, uh, both of them had the sense that everyone has to be given some minimal rations, right, uh, for sustenance. And then beyond that, whatever they earn, they earn. Uh, but for the governors, if you were a governor under Omar's rule, you could not live better than the lowest person in your land. And if you did, you get beaten by Omar, unless you came up with like with a really good explanation. And under Uthman, as long as you are not doing anything haram, you could live according to your wealth. So who's correct? They both are. Right? That's part of the the, the fun of the four Khalifas. They're all doing fundamentally different systems that are all completely Islamic. So. Dania. Um, I, like I think like another, what's up? No, no, I was responding to uh, Asim. He he likes Omar's approach minus the beating and I kind of like the beating. But yeah, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> um, I think also another like unknown factor with the risk is the uh, so what, what is that in fact for each person that like, what does that look like for each person? Because like mm. you were referencing earlier, you know, some people it's with their money, but some people don't have that money necessarily. So it's with their actions or with their knowledge, yeah. et cetera. So what that looks like is different and the amount of what that looks like is different too. Absolutely. This is another good point uh, in the sense that for me, giving money might be easy, giving time might be hard. And thus I might get more rewarded for the time. For the next person, it might be the inverse. Yeah. Not related to how much time or money I have, just in terms of, you know, impulse and such. For me, fasting is 100 times easier than praying. For the next person, praying is 100 times easier than fasting. You know, I can like fast all the time, you know. Uh, but yeah, that's another good point. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections about any and all of this? Um, I do have one more um, regarding giving of your time. Um, I think there's there's an there's sort of an easy parallel to say like giving of your money and and how that is and should be structured, right? We have different 
structures for that. What do we do regarding time? As in, um, is it anything that materially benefits your community or is it like, how, how do we define what is giving your time? Mm. It's more or less the same thing. You uh, So sadaqa in terms of wealth is wealth given by money is money given with the intent of you know improving something for somebody else right giving ease for somebody else so think of time the same way makes sense i'm given with the intent of improving ease for somebody else yeah either directly indirectly individually collectively yeah what i would urge on that note for everyone to consider is measure in dollars how much you give specifically to the growth of the community not for everybody you know right i mean you should be giving to everybody regardless of religious belief but how much you give for the growth of community and in terms of hours how much you give to the growth of the community our community is mashallah very generous apparently statistically we're the most generous out of all of them i don't know how that gets measured but apparently we are but i, I would argue Sorry. Let me just yeah finish the point. I'll get to you now. Mm -hmm. I'd argue, however, in terms of time given, uh, we're ultra stingy, so, and thus the community suffers for it. Nadia, it's a quick question about giving your time. Mm -hmm. Does that count? Does parenting count? Yeah, absolutely. Do those little ones count as a community if you have enough. Especially time? the beatings. No, I mean, <laughs> a, a way uh, I put it to a lot of young aspiring celebrity preachers is okay. So, no exaggeration. You all know I've probably given in the last twenty years, you know, or even the first ten of the last twenty years, I've probably given ten thousand talks, right? So, think of how many hours that is. Average length is probably forty minutes. Let's just say. So that works out to about 6,000 uh, minutes. No, is that the right math? No. Anyway, whatever the math is. Let's just say each one is an hour. So 10,000 hours, okay? Uh, that is worth less than 100 hours of a parent to a child. Because just think about it. Think of how many talks people hear. Unless mine are so startlingly, startlingly, startling, unless mine are just so profound, right? Yeah, fasting. And, you know, memorable that it just stays with people, probably not any more than the next one. Then it's like I gave them a good meal. If it's a class, then there's more digestion taking place. If it's a years long relationship, there's even more digestion taking place. And then it becomes more like, you know, a teacher-student-apprentice, master-apprentice relationship. So the point being that we underestimate in our community the value of time given to the child. Another way to think about this is what are the three things that still give you uh, good deeds after you pass away? What are the things that still, the three things that still benefit you after you die? Deeds of your children. So the children's prayers for you. What else? I think if you like give a Quran to someone, if they like read it, if you give knowledge, not, like not writing good. or knowledge, and then third one, sadaqajaria, that type of charity which keeps resulting in benefit. Like if you if you sponsor a fountain, 
and people continue to drink from it after you die, right? So if one of the things that benefits you after you die is an upright child praying for you, then that is one of the best activisms you can do, right? So three of the best activisms you can do, one is your contribution to society is upright children. And if you walk through the whole process, that's a very strong contribution to society, upright children, which many of the kids of many of Chicago's preachers and leaders come to me. And I can tell you what goes on behind closed doors in many of the leaders' homes is not the same as what they preach in front of everybody, right? Uh, and this is a common thing you see, right? Where you have charismatic, yeah, powerful preacher. Right? I'm sorry? Yeah, oh, that uh, very commonly you will have, you know, a preacher that many people look up to. And of course, you know, I know too much about these things. Uh, but <clears throat> their house is completely abandoned. So one of the best things you can contribute to society is an upright child. Another of the best things you can contribute is knowledge. And then those charities that are lasting. So I would absolutely include parenting as long as it's actual parenting. Because again, my job security are those parents that give their child every luxury except for time. You know, and <clears throat> then those kids come to me. Mustafa. So the time thing is very interesting because I would say that that is very accurate over here in the U.S. People are very fidgety with punctuality, being on time, and like not proceeding according to plan. It's like I planned to be at this place at that time, and that's uh, totally me. <laughs> uh, whereas in Egypt, on the other hand, it's like you can run into a random person because of like a random sentence, just start a three hour conversation with one another and part ways feeling like you made a friend only to realize you don't know what the person's name is, nor their phone number or contact information, or if you're ever going to see them again or not. Mm. And so I feel like uh, there is like a very interesting cultural difference in that aspect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally, totally. Yeah, when I, uh, I went to Cairo last summer to work on some projects, some religious projects, and my teacher in Azhari here in Chicago from Cairo basically said, look, be happy if you get one thing done a day, right? And like I had to internalize that, and yeah, he was correct. We were getting one thing done every two or three days. So, yeah, and then here, like my whole brain is totally scheduled that, all right, I wake up at this time, I do this, I do this, and then I leave the house exactly at this time. But then what happens exactly at the time I'm stepping out of the house, because then I'm going to get to work at exactly this time, is that my mother says, wait, go downstairs and get, you know, such and such from the fridge. And my father says, hey, go look at this. And I'm like, must listen to parent. Yeah. So, absolutely. Single serving friend from Fight Club. Yeah. Any other thoughts, reflections on any of this? So, again, what are we speaking about here? We're not speaking about the Muslim. We're speaking about the muttaqi. So think of the Muslim in the sense of someone who's essentially consistent in doing the bare minimum. 
them. And then that's a passing grade to get to paradise. The person of taqwa is the person who's aiming for higher and higher and higher. So for the common person, how much wealth should they give? They should give out of their surplus. How much time should they give? They should give out of their surplus. For the person of taqwa, they have the confidence, not delusion, but confidence in Allah's wealth that they can give it all when people are asking for it. And that is the person of taqwa. Likewise, for time, they have time to give, they will give it. This is the person who is aspiring for an A+, whereas the common Muslim is aspiring for a passing grade. So if I do not fulfill these, it does not mean that I'm a failure. Another point to consider, how many commands have we had so far? Hey, Bilal, how many commands have we had so far? Starting from Al-Fatiha through now. Um, None. Sadia, you took my class like 600 <laughs> times. Totally cheating. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Like, I, I know the answer. The answer not. is zero. <laughs> but but you should be proud that at least I remember. Mashallah, I'm very proud. I'm very proud that you have absorbed these things. Mashallah. Yeah. Thanks. So, trick question for all of you who are newer to this. At this point, uh, we have had zero commands. We've believe it or not, we've actually made it almost to the middle of Ramadan, and we've had zero commands so far. We've had attributes. You know, like the attributes of people of Taka, no commands yet. Those are not going to come for at least a week. Righty. Any other last questions, thoughts, reflections about anything? I have a question. How did, oh yeah, okay, go ahead. If I, sorry. sorry. So no, I was going to ask like, you know, when you um, look around you and you see people who give up everything, you know, they're, it's it's very interesting because I feel like sometimes they do it to their own ruin, mm-hmm. almost themselves. So like, where's the balance between, and you know what it is? Sometimes it's like, they don't know any better and they feel obligated to give. So then they give other times. It's like, you know, um, they are almost like a slave to it. Like if somebody asks them, they have to just give it, you know what I mean? And it leads to like, almost like a, destruction of themselves of their of their you know and it's like they lose a sense of of themselves I don't know I I don't know if this is good you know this is a good thing and is that different from somebody who's a mutakhi and giving because they want to attain yeah a higher yeah I would say that you're speaking about a person who's deluded you know or the polite way to put it is that they actually don't know any better you know uh that's different than the mutakhi so, okay, so the example, you know, the, the classic examples are uh, Abu Bakr and Omar, and I'll give you a couple more examples, but the famous case, which is told at just about every fundraising dinner, is Omar decided one day, I am going to beat Abu Bakr today, I am going to give half of my wealth, and then, because the prophet was doing a fundraiser, and then uh, Omar arrives, I'm going to give half of my wealth, and for, turns out Abu Bakr was already there. He already gave all of his wealth. But what is not shared about that is that they're merchants and they had the confidence they'd be earning the very next day. So they're not on a salary where they're not going to get another paycheck for about two weeks. Right. So they are working within the context that they are still fulfilling their obligations to other people, like their family and such. 
and so so what is the test the test is number one in my generosity of time or wealth am i violating obligations that i have to other people including to my own self so another example of that are the guys who said okay we're going to fast all day long and do tahajjud all night and the prophet peace upon him said what don't do this your body has rights over you meaning you have an obligation to physical health which we would today extend to mental health your family has rights over you so forth and so on and so that would potentially be a type of extremism if it is being done in such a way that you're not fulfilling the rights of other people or even your own self. And then uh, uh, an example that I think is even more heavy duty is Zain al-Abidin, Imam Zain al-Abidin. And they find out, he, so he's one of the, the major imams in Shia tradition, one of the major fam, uh, descendants of the Prophet, peace upon him, both Sunni Shia tradition, that uh, they found out after he, well, they knew when he was alive that he used to pray, anyone? A thousand rakats a day. Okay. I mean, try to even figure out how much time that would take. And he would feed a hundred families every night. The latter part they found out after he died. And he was probably himself living in poverty. But it was such that he was comfortable in it. You know, even Ali... Imam Ali and, and Fatima, they were living in such poverty that they barely could afford a lamp, you know, or food. And, and so then uh, one of Ali's, it might have been Jafar, comes over to eat. And they only had enough food for one person. So then they put out the lamp and Ali would make the sounds of eating uh, while feeding Jafar, right? Part of it was his poverty, and part of it was his generosity. So <clears throat> there is a definitely clear line, sometimes a fine line, between that which is healthy and that which is unhealthy. And the easiest test is whose rights am I fulfilling all the obligations I have to fulfill? And if not, then am I acting out of their permission? In, in his case, it would be Fatima's permission. Yeah. Make sense? But yeah, uh, I do think a lot of times piety, people are more pious than what Islam is requiring and often it is to their own detriment. So, Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? Mustafa? Uh, I have a question unrelated to what we've been talking about, but it's been on my mind for a while now. Sure. Um, <clears throat> when talking to my sister about you and classes uh you're like we how both realize yeah, yeah keep going oh, don't say that about <laughs> yourself we both realized we didn't really know how to refer to you in a respectful manner it's like do oh. we say professor do we say Ostez? do we <laughs> it's like <laughs> what do we use exactly over here so what would be a good respectful way to refer to you well, let's see. It shouldn't be too ostentatious. I'm thinking like Holy Roman Emperor. What do you think? Is that a good one? You know. I think Mazi is perfect. Mazi? Yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay. So my Loyola undergrads call me Mozo. And they used to kill a piece of my heart every single time they said it. Now I don't think I have any heart left to die. <laughs> uh, 
let's see. Bilal calls me Omer Chacha, Omer Chachu, but probably because I'm his uncle. Austin, what do you call me? Omer Pai? I call you Omer Pai. I also put the big cheese in the chat. Seriously, the big cheese. Daniel, what do you call me? Professor, of course. Sure. If what do you call me? Do we call you? Zafra. No. Um. Okay. Yeah, we call you Om. Om. Okay. Like O M. Yeah, I kind of figured the spelling spelling of that word. <laughs> yeah. All righty. So any of those work? Yeah. Uh. Okay. <laughs> Professor, then. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Usually in the community, people call me Omer Pai. But yeah. No. Yeah. Well, it's primarily because. Again, the Arab culture, it's like when we respect or acknowledge someone as a teacher, it, there's kind of like... Yeah, some respect. Yeah, and it feels very awkward to just like say the name as maybe, is. <laughs> maybe you just have to say the name and get over the awkwardness of the moment. Northwestern people used to call me promo. Uh that was like Professor Muzaffar, which was way cooler than Mozo, you know. But I have no preference, you know. Omer Pai, yeah. Hey, Bassett, what do you call me? Oh, you call me Brother Omer, yeah. Which was funny because he had another teacher, Fozan, who he'd call Fozan Uncle, and even though Fozan was significantly younger than me, that I always got confused about. But yeah. Fozan, he's younger than you? Way younger than me, but he has his long beard, no so he way. looks really older. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, whatever, whatever you're comfortable with, professor's probably the easiest thing, you know. Sheikh, Ostaz. Oh, I also have some people call me Molana, but they do the Arab style of Molana, which is they're making fun of me. Yeah, yeah. which, yeah. Uh, like, I don't know. I, I feel like the term Maulana is uh, a bit of an awkward one to use because yeah. it can go either way. And exactly. so it's like, eh, I don't like that. <laughs> and I'm a master of making every situation as awkward as possible. Yeah. Awesome. Wasn't, was the burger at that place called the Molana burger? <laughs> yes, right? it was. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a place not too far from here, uh, right by the AC guys, a burger place that had burgers called the Molana burger, the Jahannam burger. What else was there? Uh, I don't remember, but the Jahannam burger was off menu. Oh, okay, got it, got it, got it. There was seven Where different kinds of meat. It, it's closed now. It was on um, Montrose, I think. It was on Wilson. Wilson, Wilson, near not too far from the red line. Pretty yeah. much right there. Yeah. No, the Jahannam burger is literally all the kinds of meat that they have on one burger. Yeah. And one of our friends ate it once, and it was the most horrifying thing I've ever he seen. Just, he just went to a bizarro food coma at that moment, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I the thought this would have been though. spicy. Yeah, it probably was. It would have had everything, yeah. Yeah. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections about anything at all? I mean, you can, you can call me what many Daisy moms call their husbands. Hey. <laughs> oh, of that parents' generation, you know. No other questions, thoughts, reflections. Yeah. All righty. Let me not. Never mind. I'd rather just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Mashallah. Growth is happening. Another Ramadan miracle. Mashallah. All righty. Nothing else? Then we'll stop right here, inshallah. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. 
May Allah Ta'ala reward you all, inshallah. And we will see you, inshallah, tomorrow. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.